In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like an anti-hero. Oh, why not the hero? Well, I got inspired by this uh, idea of the anti-hero because of today's guest. And I'm not talking about the latest pop song by Taylor Swift, which is also uh, a kind of earworm that since I've been in New York, I can't get out of my head. But actually, music does inform today's guest in a different way. Definitely not Taylor Swift, I think. But um, he is a painter originally from Scotland. And he described the domestic as a sort of anti-heroic subject. And I was really taken by that that kind of idea. He was talking about uh, the kind of heroicism of every day life and James Joyce and the reason I also reference James Joyce is because books and uh, writing and novels and uh, storytelling is a huge part of today's guest work mm. and um, he makes paintings actually often on book covers as well so for those who don't know his work you must seek out that body of work like that particular series because he doesn't always paint on book covers but the ones that he does are just like I don't know you and I love them don't we yeah. they're, they're super um, special there's a history to them already before the actual painting has been placed on the yeah, cover. exactly. Um, so we are very excited. There's currently an exhibition on at the Hepworth uh, Wakefield. It's called What Made You Stop Here? And we'll talk about that turn of phrase as well, because I love that turn of phrase. Um, and it's running for ages. So it's running until the 2nd of June, 2024. Everyone travel there because I, A, I love the museum, but this exhibition is just transcendent and luminescent and all those wonderful words. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Andrew, Andrew Cranston. Hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good, yeah. Yeah, good. It's quite freezing here, actually, but it's, um, yeah. Where is here? Uh, Glasgow. You're from Scotland, but you're not from Glasgow. And no, I'm, I'm from the south of Scotland, the kind of area known as the Borders, in a town called Hoyk. Yeah, I grew up there. And uh, it's a very important place to me. It still figures large in my imagination and it formed me in a way. But I've not lived there since I was 20. How long does it take to get to Hoyk from where you are now then? It's really hellish to get to because the beach and train cuts in the 60s hit that area really bad. So there's no trains you know, you can only go by road. Well, there's a there's a wee train now. There's a train now that goes some of the way. Yeah, it's terrible. Two hours on a bus from Edinburgh. 
I heard you describe it as a kind of geographical exile, um, like the fact you hadn't been there for, or, or lived there for 30 years, but it still kind of sits within your mind, especially when you're making work, maybe. I mean, since that, you mentioned like James Joyce, you know, but or um, an art, a writer like him, you know, wrote about Dublin almost always in exile. And I think there's some area of your brain is recording things from the start or very early on. And, you know, they can be really useful or they can just come back to you in a surprising way. I mean, I, read, I heard Nick Cave actually talking once about how when he would write a song about her and it had a river or a tree in it, for him it was a very specific tree and a specific river to the small town he was from. And it's a bit like that. I think there's sort of very, you know, definite models that I have. It was a great town to grow up in. It was quite smallish, but quite busy and bustling kind of industrial town in a way, um, surrounded by beautiful landscape, beautiful countryside. You should go. It sounds great. Are there, so are there motifs from Howick then that feature in your work now? Like you're saying about Nick Cave mentioned about a tree or a river and they're, they're like really embedded in his kind of psyche of somewhere he places them. Do they, is there the things like moving water or objects or anything that you kind of are in your mind's eye from your past? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I know the area so well, you know, just through kind of inhabiting it for those years at the beginning you know it would just so there's so many things like certain landscapes certain woods or or locks it, it kind of comes up in all sorts of ways i mean it, as i say it was it was quite an industrial town it was knitwear industry which eventually just collapsed um well i think kind of through thatcher's anti-manufacturing policies, but it was quite industrial. So you'd get the kind of, almost every other street had a, a factory in it and uh, belching out steam and smoke and kind of Lowry-like, you know, in, in a mm. way. So there's very, yeah, there's specific places and motifs, yes. Um, there's loads of ways in which it keeps influencing me. And uh, although there was no art, in my family, you know, in terms of people calling themselves artists, there was great storytellers, great, interested in history and, and, and talkers, you know, kind of thing. So I think storytelling is like a great art form that doesn't get called an art form. You know, it's mm. kind of, everybody does it, even if it's, even if it's the form of a joke or something, you know, people deliver this, in a story in a in a kind of interesting way, and I think I think you know my mum and dad were very much like that, and all my family. So yeah, I, I really I'm from Essex, and my parents are great storytellers, and we we hear the same stories over and over again, and we love them because we know the ending already. But it's like this whole it's it's a real it is a real art form. But then I will write about. Essex because it's in me like elements of it like this school bus stop outside my high school I just it's embedded in my brain and every time if that ever comes up in something that is the bus stop and I love mm. I love this idea of making art 
when you're exiled from an area, but you're still drawn back to that. It's really fascinating to me. I mean, yeah, and it's funny, I, I sort of, um, as you you know, maybe I write about the work as well. And um, I like misremembering things in a way. Like, you know, I think that's a creative thing to do is that you, your memory is not always reliable or uh, trustworthy or, you know, you, you're maybe exaggerating and, or, or changing elements, even if you don't think you are. So I think there's a creativity in remembering itself, like you're translating something into now. You know, it's, it's kind of a way in which all the past is there. You're in the studio and you're kind of all the past time and all the potential future times there at the same time. Uh, it's a way of time traveling, I think. You know, it's a way of sort of, you know, conjuring something up. Making art is time traveling. Yeah. I, I, I think that may, had a big impact on me growing up. Certain TV kind of programs, but Dennis Potter's plays. Things like Blue Remembered Hills and The Singing Detective. Yeah. And the way he accessed his past as a sort of, you know, often like in, it would be in parallel with a, a different present, you know, so that you, you'd go to this childhood that he'd had in the Forest of Dean. And, and you, so you got to kind of almost sort of know it through consistency in his work you know this you, this this place that was somehow in the background or whatever character that was there you know and there was something very recognizable about his childhood on screen um with mine as well you know it was that kind of farms and wide open spaces combined with this kind of small industrial town I mean, for him, it was coal mining, but yeah. There's this um, story that I've he heard of yours where, you know, you, you just talked about art not being something that you were really able to claim as something that you could have or you didn't really know any artists. But then when you were 17, uh, you were in the Lake District and you saw this, like these rocks in this river and you were compelled to take photographs and you couldn't find a camera anywhere. So that's when you went and bought a pad and pencil and started drawing them. And then from that moment onwards, it triggered you. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. Um, forever, I mean, I had drawn a lot as a boy and uh, it was probably the only thing at school that, certainly primary school, that I seemed to be... I don't know, I was in the top two or three people in class, you know, it was kind of sort of, was told I was good at it. But and I did, you know, comics and things like that. So I had always kind of drawn a bit. But by that stage, seeing these rocks that day, I had probably hadn't drawn for a couple, few years. So it seemed like it would come out of the blue. And um, I'm sure I've got the sketchbook somewhere, but um, terrible. Yeah, because you don't throw anything away, right? Well, well, I, I mean, I, that's maybe slightly misleading. I do, <laughs> but I could do with some big bonfires. <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't. That sounds horrific. Don't do that. I mean, I've seen pictures of your studio, and it looks very um, rich with uh, layers of 
numerous different influences, including loads of books, but also just lots of canvases. Because I saw that you work on like numerous works at a time. It's almost like this kind of chaos, which is also not chaos because it's kind of liberating. Yeah, sometimes you said you work on like 30 paintings at once. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. How did that start? (laughs) Well, one of the ways in which I became really conscious of it was I worked in Aberdeen for a long time. I taught up there, but I was living in Glasgow. Um, So I was up there, you know, sometimes two or three, four days a week, usually just two days a week for the last few years. But, and I had a studio up there and I had a studio in Glasgow and I would kind of go between the two bodies of work, you know, so I would, do, I would make these paintings in Aberdeen, get so far with them. And then I'd come back to Glasgow and have another set of paintings kind of waiting for me. So each week I had these kind of little deadlines almost. And I, and I, I saw it was sort of really starting to work for me that rather than continuing on one painting or maybe a couple of paintings, to actually really sort of um, do more all at once. And um, it was something about making decisions about, you know, deciding what to do next. Um, by not doing anything sometimes, something works your works out and you're unconscious um something tells you what to do next and i think only in time does it you know like the sheer sort of aspect of just waiting in a way so i found that like uh i was much better just working on more than one and and just never really sort of even thinking of finishing them somehow. I just sort of kept moving them along. Um, a bit like a garden, I suppose, where you're just, you've got lots of plants on the go. Um, Does it take the anxiety out then of focusing on one work yeah. and panicking? Suddenly you think, oh, it doesn't matter, I've got this one I can think about now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing, uh, making a masterpiece is such a burden. <laughs> you know, if you, if you have anything like that in your head, I'm going to make a man. It's it's a disaster, really, kind of thing for me anyway. And you're right; the pressure is taken away. You know that. I think also the sort of idea that you can spread your ideas across things. I think for a long time I was trying to put everything all into one painting, everything I knew, or everything I was kind of sort of important to me or thinking about. And I think to divide the ideas in a way to sort of, you know, think of different paintings dealing with different issues or pictorial kind of things. So it really helped me that, you know, I can just have very slight paintings that are, you know, just very light and very, you know, hardly, and then other paintings are very heavily worked. I don't need to be one thing. Do you like your own work? Hmm. Uh, well, I don't have any up in the house. Um, we don't have hardly any art. I mean, Lauren, I'm a partner. Uh, well, we probably just need a rest from it. Because she's an artist as well, your partner. She's an artist, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, she's okay. a painter. And we, well, our studios are next door to each other as well. So, Really? So, what, what's her name? Lorna, Lorna Robertson. And uh, 
we met in Glasgow 26 years ago in a studio. And uh, she uh, liked working late and and I did too. So we found we were often leaving at the same time. She lived across the other side of this Glasgow. And the, where the studio was, I don't know if you know the Barrowlands Concert Hall. Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. Well, it's just right up across the road from that. So wow. it's it's a pretty rough area, Glasgow, you know, and you necessarily want to be work, walking there two in the morning every night. So mm-hmm. we, we, we found ourselves walking across the city every night and uh, yeah, we got together. So, yeah, we've been sort of, you know, partners in crime, really, in painting. And uh, so we're next door. So we, we show each other work all the time, kind of thing. What was the question? <laughs> so you were talking about you were talking about not having no art in the house, and I asked you if you liked your own work. I feel in a kind of way it's not for me. You know, it's like I, I, I make it, and I'm often asked, you know, is it really hard? You know, giving them away or, or you know getting them taken away. No, I'm quite glad to see the back of them, to be honest, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of, and then I feel, you know, because I think being an artist and and I think especially maybe a painter, you can feel a bit mad and you're do it alone really. And it's, it's an absurd existence, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you're in this room, moving this coloured mud around and you're trying to kind of make something out of it that might be meaningful or feel significant. And then so many times it just seems, you know, like here I am, I'm 54, I'm, what am I doing? You know, like, and, and it can seem self-indulgent. But when the work goes out there, it then sort of, you know, takes part it has a different life in a way. It has its own life. And I uh, really enjoy, especially in the last few years, really enjoyed seeing what happens to the work and, and how other people, you know, uh, get what they take from it and uh, what they bring to it. You know, so I think maybe that's something I, I imagine a writer must experience as well. Yes. You know, you, you, you make this thing in a kind of ice, quite isolation that maybe only a few people are seeing. And then it goes out there and it has a, a dialogue with other people, you know, but, but in the making, it's quite, and there's no, you know, there's not much conversation really. It's interesting that though, because I think a lot of successful books or art or music, it's often um, made with a lot of heart and uh, kind of, authenticity in a way but it also does leave room for a viewer or a listener to actually project into it and it becomes theirs and I, I read you talk about that quite a lot this idea of like uh, taking things out of your paintings so um luckily because you make so many at once you're able to actually like almost hide things you might have put in them or or, or 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 strip away and I was really into that as an idea this idea of almost like you paint but then you also remove things in, in order to allow a viewer to project a bit like you did in your childhood in theatre or, or, or um, the written word or what have you. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, th- I think that's uh, the space for the viewer. Um, I mean, it, it's a thing that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not naturally kind of minimalist. 
Mm. Um, the whole, you know, less is more approach. You know, I don't come from that kind of um, tradition or something, if you like, but um, there is so much in it in the sense that I think there's a gap to be left where people can, they have to work a bit themselves to finish the to finish the the image or the the idea, and you can go too far with paintings. So it's sometimes a case of working backwards and kind of getting to the point where, I mean, you didn't describe things so much or or things were simpler, you know. But that must that must just take time. That must just be practice to give yourself permission to be less is more. Yes, exactly. I think it's hard to be, I think in a way it might be a kind of thing that you come to over time. Yes. I don't know if it's, I'm sure people could prove me wrong with this, but it's maybe so harder to be simpler when you're younger yes. in a way. I agree with all creativity. I mean, I, I'm an actor and I feel like as I've got older, I'm braver. It feels braver to do nothing than to do too much. And yes. I, I really try and, I mean, my face is so rubbery, I frustrate myself, but I really try and do as little as possible and try and tell the story using as less like face language as possible. But my face just goes like Jim Carrey in the mask, whatever I do. But it's, <laughs> it's definitely that thing of just like reducing and, and making yeah. it the essence of whatever it is that you're trying, the story you're trying to tell is, is kind of an act of bravery in some ways. It's also yeah. easier though for the viewer to like enjoy it then. Because I think I think if someone's trying too hard, it's almost like they fill so much space up that you, you can't can even access it, yeah. it, and then it puts people off. So I think that's also why often people get more successful later in life. That's interesting, um, you yeah. Know, yeah, because there's more like maturity and reduction, actually. Yeah. I mean, the one advantage seems to be that, like, you in the course of time, you, you reinvented yourself a few times, and you've kind of sort of... Um, tried so many different things out and, you know, and kind of in a way failed, you know, like more privately maybe, but, but failed, you know, there's all sorts of um, dead ends that you've been down as well. Uh, so when you, you, I don't know, you, it's not like you get any more sure, but you do get, there's a certain maybe confidence about trusting something there is enough, you know, you think that that's a, I've done enough there, you know, and, or that's interesting, you know, because I think I, I wouldn't have been able to accept that at some point. Well, I think about your early works, you said about reinventing yourself. I, I, like there was a work in 2009, I think it was you in your studio, but exploring claustrophobia because you yourself are claustrophobic and the earlier works were exploring this notion of being trapped in a studio, being trapped in a small confined space, almost Bacon-esque in its sort of uh, landscape. Yes. Yeah. I know. That's, it's, it's, I think, um, you know, all your things are available there for exploring fears, phobias, everything, you know, is sort of uh, useful or, or, or rich in a kind of way. I mean, I, I think that there's always that confusion, isn't there, where people think you make art about things you like, you know, in a way. That there's a sort of, 
in you know, I, I think in, in our culture broadly, this idea of just liking something and kind of is is so blunt in a way, because because there's so much to be gotten out of things that you have complex feelings about in a way, or or you you know you're not sure what you think in a kind of way. So yeah, things like claustrophobia or something kind of uh, certain spaces and they gave me a lot of uh, food you know for a while do you think of an audience we're talking about what people take from the paintings but I've read that in some ways you don't consider an audience the only audience you consider is other painters yeah that's right I I, you know yeah I think it's it's other painters really that you imagine might be looking at them if anybody at all, I mean, generally, nobody. You know, I don't really find it helpful to sort of think of an audience. There's only been a few occasions where I've made work very specifically for an exhibition. Um, normally, it's like the exhibition is just a kind of cut-off point where, you know, these are the paintings that are ready at that time or, mm. or you know, but... I'm very rarely of a sort of grouped work into kind of some theme or or something that you think, oh, right, this is definitely for this. I mean, there was a painting in, I did a show in Edinburgh in the summer, and uh, which the work, a lot of the work has travelled to the Hepworth. Mm. And there was one painting in that, which I did very specifically for an Edinburgh audience. Yeah, that's unusual. What, what do you mean an Edinburgh audience? And what would what would that audience be that would specifically well, make a painting well, for? It, it was a painting of fish in a tiled pond. It really was based on a memory of the museum in Edinburgh, the uh, National Scot- Scottish National Museum, or people in Edinburgh called it the Chamber Street Museum. Uh, used to have these fish in a pond. At the in the foyer of the museum, um, big kind of carp, you know, koi carp fish and goldfish, and they would just silently glide around and they were right there, you know. And anybody of a certain, I mean, they didn't, when the, the museum got a facelift in, uh, I think, about 20 years ago, they, they did away with the fish. Oh, where did the fish go? Glasgow. <laughs> oh, they, they got moved. They, they weren't made into fish and chips or anything. They went off. Okay, they got right. moved to uh, the Kibble Palace in Glasgow. Oh, nice. And so, and uh, now I can see them all the time. But the, it was an incredible sort of uh, beautiful uh, sight, really, these fish. And so, so many, I posted a image of this fish because I'd worked with this image a few times and I was really struck by the amount of people from Edinburgh that instantly knew oh, wow. what I was referring to. And it was part of their childhood. And it was like a, a, a real sort of feature, like a kind of motif in Edinburgh. Um, so I kind of uh, was doing this show in Edinburgh and I just had tried a few times to make a bigger version of that, the image. And always sort of failed somehow. It just never worked. I never got the scale right. Surface was never right. So 
Um, there are things I chuck in the bucket, by the way. Um, and so the, the um, but this time I just saw how to do it. So and I kind of had a clearer idea, you know, how to make it. But, you know, really I don't make work for exhibitions. And the, the audience is, I have to forget it somehow. It can be such a distraction. But when your audience is the other painters then, what does that drive you? Does that drive you to be better? Does that drive you because you know you're going to have your peers like critiquing the work? Like big skills. Does it, does that, is <laughs> it, having that as an audience in your mind's eye, that must really uh, make you work harder in the studio. Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of, um, yeah, I can't slack off. I don't know. Are there certain artists in your head that you can see in front of your paintings going, oh, I'm not sure of this one, Andrew? Or are there, like, do you see like Peter Doig, obviously, is a friend of yours. Do you consider him looking yeah. at a painting and going, not your best, or this is great? Yeah, yeah, he's there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, lots, of, lots of London painters, uh, Paul Housley, somebody, Dave Martin. You know, I did, I did, there's there's quite a few um, that I think oh, they'll they'll see this. You know, it's quite nightmarish, like a Greek chor- like a Greek chorus of artists, all sort of just yeah. hanging over your shoulders every time you make a oh painting. That would make a great scene in a <laughs> film or something. Yeah, I don't know. You know, people I worked beside in Aberdeen, um, they're all over. You know, like this is interesting. But Instagram is sort of like a genuine global village now of uh, people you're connected with, you know, in a way. Um, Essentially, I mean, do do you find that if you're acting, you look down and if you were in a play and you'd see another actor there, would that be... I think... uh, (laughs) I think you consider your peers, yeah. You sort of want the approval or the attention of your industry don't you I guess that that's the biggest accolade if if you're you know like, like if you're an artist artist that's kind of the highest accolade you can have really isn't it we also have our group chat Russ where we all analyze each other's not 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 my performances but the other people are in, in it are all actors so every time they're on tv we all do little reviews um you, you you said with glee earlier on andrew about the fish coming to glasgow and that you're able to go see them what do you like going to see like other people's work or or older art because i know every time i've read about your work it mentions like riyadh or it mentions i don't Mirandi know Milne or, or Mirandi. Or, and yeah. actually that's a really great example of reduction in a, in a way of like take stripping things back yeah. to their core essence almost in the object but what sort of things bring you joy or inspiration and, you know, set you alight? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I'll, there's a museum very near me, Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. There's things in there that I really love, you know. In fact, there's a couple of Vuillard's paintings in there. Mm. There's a lovely Picasso, um, you know. But funnily enough, I mean... Glasgow's not great collections, really. So, you know, art's uh, in a way slightly elsewhere, really. Um, Mm. It's not the same thing, but I get a lot from reproduction. I get a lot from postcards and books and, uh, you know, and then, you know, we may go to London or Paris or New York and, and see the real things. I mean... There's a room in New York, a Matisse's, 
which uh, that room is just perfection in a kind of way. It's it's I could just you know that film Stalker, Tarkovsky film Stalker, where he, he, the room there's a kind of mythic room that all your dreams come true. That's the Matisse room in MoMA. Um, that's kind of perfection. Which um, which, which works are they by him there? I'm trying to remember uh, seen them. Red Studio. Did you see the exhibition of the Red Studio that was up recently? It was the most incredible like curation. The, yeah, with the objects and all the paintings within the paintings. Yeah, because you've got the Red Studio, so it's all, mm-hmm. all objects in his studio. And the walks into creation, I was a bit like, I don't really understand what's going on here. Then suddenly you realise that all the objects that are in the painting, the actual physical objects is suddenly on the wall next to you, or it's the sculpture, and, it, and it, everything that he'd painted had come to life in that room. It was the most incredible curation. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that show. It was just wonderful. There's the piano lesson in there. Mm. I mean, just every work is is just incredible. And they're, you know, I think, you know, Matisse is kind of misunderstood in a sort of way. You know, he's kind of thought of in some ways as a quite, you know, pretty painter or somebody that's just sort of quite bourgeois. But the decisions he makes in, in, in paintings are are so brave and uh, and and raw there's a real rawness to his work which still seems really very alive in 100 years later and and it quite uh, direct in a way um, and yet there's this there's a kind of weight to them as well even though they're you know they're not there's no flippancy to them yeah, I just absorb things all the time. That's what I'm constantly doing. Uh, you, you've described that as the hunt before of trying to trying to find the next painting, but through through the daily like everyday experience, you don't you don't mm. put, push yourself like you you've described having like quite a routine existence. So it's not like you push yourself outside of your comfort zone to get inspiration. You're you're always mining the mundane, I guess, but you find that. I think I, well, what I'd basically like to talk about is something that I read that you've coined is daily cosmic shock, <laughs> yeah. which I think is such an amazing term. What, can you talk about that and how that comes into your practice? I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not at all religious in any kind of way. I never had a moment's kind of feeling or anything like that. But I do think there is that sort of... Um, shock every day really that there's anything here at all you know that there's there's something rather than nothing and uh, I mean I experience it on waking up but also just you know dozens or hundreds of times a day really where you know this this is all going on and um, you can kind of frighten yourself almost by sort of a level of consciousness where it's um, it appears to be real. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a awareness really that um, which, if you can kind of grasp it, seems 
extremely profound. I mean, you know, I taught when I was teaching, I taught a lot of life drawing, I taught a lot of uh, life painting and life drawing. And this was in Aberdeen, which is, you know, Scotland's got a slightly different system from England and lots of the changes that were made in English art schools like in the 1960s and 70s didn't really happen in Scotland. So life drawing has just continued throughout that time. And I did a lot, I taught a lot of life drawing. And I think, you know, from the outside, it could seem like it's uh, quite arcane exercise and trying to represent you know a naked figure or something like that but what I think was really going on was you were trying to instill an awareness of differences and similarities and the model often just provide a folk provided a focus for that something to look at it could have been a chair or it could have been, you know, anything really. But it's the process of a kind of awareness and attention to things, which I think uh, it, it, what is going on often when you're when you're in a life room, you know. And I, I think it, 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 to me, it's quite a profound thing and quite, I mean, you know, we maybe get students drawing for five or six hours um, you know to be in a room in silence for five and six hours looking at the same thing that just does you such enormous good even if the drawings are, don't look like you know it's almost like the drawing is just a, a byproduct of, of that experience and that process you know, I think I find that experience profound in the fact that people are looking at the same subject for that long, but yet, like a fingerprint, everybody's drawing will be completely different. We're we're all so unique when it comes to our artistic uh, abilities, but yet we're all looking at exactly the same thing. Yeah, and also how how each person interprets something or how they see, because no one person does actually see the same. No, that's right, and and I think even. And you're looking, I think, requires so much testing, you know, of of things, you know, that the, um, you know, there's a sort of uh, often you think you know what something looks like, and you're you're fighting with a kind of existing image of the thing already, and then actually when you look at it, it's quite different. Yeah, you take things for granted. And then if you really yeah. look at it, you go, oh, that's what that looks like. I've just seen it like peripherally, you've taken the information in. But is there a difference then for you between looking and seeing? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose seeing is kind of looking plus understanding you know, in a kind of way. It's like something about a kind of realisation and seeing, you know, and uh, I mean, seeing's maybe more loaded a word in a kind of way that, that you realise the truth of something, um, you, you're seeing it in a way as opposed to just looking at it. Um, but there's there's so much pleasure in looking as well kind of thing that we just, yeah, we do take that for granted in a kind of way. That, 
you know, there's the sheer pleasure of color and, you know, form, you know, it's, it's, it's a daily thrill. I, I think every situation's got something in it, which is, is full of potential. So I never, you know, it's interesting you talk about the hunt for images in some ways it's the opposite of that, you know, it is that, but it's kind of, you're always on the lookout, but in some ways the things around you are, are often, a, they're enough. It's under your nose all the time. Mm. I mean, some of, some of the best writing or poetry is, is from that. It's from like a domestic space and the people never even leave their towns, but they write books that last for hundreds of years. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I, I lo- I've always loved that. I think that's such a gem of an... You've you know, said you find the everyday life anything but mundane. Which is kind of beautiful, yeah. that like the the magic of a, a, a average day lived is is beautiful. Yeah, it has. Uh, it, you know, it is. It's a, there's a kind of thrill of existing at all, but um, and you know, you know that feeling when dust comes into a room or a, s- a shaft of sunlight illuminates the dust. Mm. You know, it's just there all along, kind of thing. Well, and yeah, but I look at that and think that's just a load of old skin that we're breathing in and out the whole day. And it's only when yeah. the sunlight comes in, you go, oh, my God, that's around us all the time. Really but <laughs> yeah. you, you, you see that opposite to me. You love it. I'm it, a bit more Quentin Crisp about <laughs> is, is painting addictive? Oh, yes. I mean, nothing really quite like it. It, it is a kind of monkey on your back kind of analogy when you're never quite satisfied in a way but I think um, yeah I find it very addictive uh, you know I think it, it it just keeps kind of leading to the next thing you know so there's no end to it in a way there's no resolution how do you leave the studio then how do you if you're working on all these paintings at once and you don't have any work at home how how do you leave these images behind if it, if this is constant drive to and this addiction to keep making images? Well, I mean, in a way, mercifully, I've I've you know I've got children and I've um, you know I have to go home and you know sort of pick people up for school or feed people and things like that. But me and Lorna talk about this all the time that like you know sometimes it is very hard to leave and and and. In that is the absurdity. You know, you think, I could be out there having a life. You know, I could be kind of just totally enjoying myself, you know, all the time. But you're locked into this often. You have to leave. You have to... I mean, there's often a kind of slight thing you do before you leave, which is some kind of risk, something risky, or or you just kind of make something... To you, which you know is you're going to come back to. Like what? Like what? What would that be? I mean, in the more extreme things, it could be just you know pouring paint over something, like and then and then lying it upright to you know the gravity to run the, make the paint run down, and you know that like it's it some things are going to have 
happened while you're away. The alchemy of it. Do you, would you take that, that home with you then? Would you be thinking about that the whole time then? So if you leave it or you leave an image behind, are you kind of like going over that in your head? Yeah, totally. It's like that. And there's a great Pink Panther cartoon where the paintings all come alive at night. So in the, <laughs> in the Louvre or something, and they're all chasing each other around. I mean, there is that sort of, um, you know, thought of them really there kind of thing. But yeah, I've always wanted things to come back to so that, you know, you're in a way you might even just make a complete mess in order to have something to sort out. You know, destruction is quite important as well to sort of feel the freedom to be able to destroy something and having faith that sometimes in that destruction, something new is going to be there that might be best. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mm. A phoenix, a phoenix from the flames. How was it in in the late nineties when you became a dad and you, you know you had parent, you, you were suddenly a parent? How did that impact your work? Because I, I read that it did sort of shift the way that you thought about things, like obviously as it would, but I, I mean creatively. Yeah, I mean that probably is where the first time the domestic kind of entered my thoughts. You know where. You know, I was maybe spending more time inside than I had before and started to see the possibilities of that, you know, and the, the kind of potential for things. And, you know, it's always complicated when, you know, painting takes a time, you know, it's quite demanding for time. So there was a shift in mentally where I had to, I had to think, Slightly, I had to adapt really into thinking, you know, almost pockets of time that I might only have to make the work. So it gave a greater importance to the time when I wasn't making work, as to where things were gestating, and the kind of to make that analogy. So no time was was wasted really. Of course, I mean, I had the experience you know, opened up so many things, you know, emotionally and just what was useful as well is it reminded you of things, you know, it kind of gave you a sort of quite non-verbal reminder of something that you'd almost forgot or or you had forgot, but was somehow deep within you. Mm. And it was being 
you know, awoken by smell and by touch and by, you know, just all the kind of things that, that you know, when you're having, you have babies kind of and young uh, children, the are pre-language in a kind mm-hmm. of way. And they just exist in the, the visual and, and, you know, audio smell kind of world. But also colour and interpretation of colour. And like, I remember when I first saw your work, I immediately weirdly thought of Helen Frankenthaler. Mm. And, um, and I've always loved her work. And then also the literary influences with you was like Emily Dickinson for me, because there's something about the way she never left home and just used to write poetry. You know, it's some of the best poetry ever written and she never left. You know what I mean? Like her house. It's just things like that. But how has colour kind of um, Im- impacted y- y- your life? And, and I know colour plays such a big work in the paintings. Yeah, I mean, it... it... You know, for a long time, I, I felt wasn't as confident with colour, you know, and it's come and gone, you know, but it was more a rediscovery. It's interesting thinking back to colour and and even first um, sort of prejudices or feelings towards colour. Like the colour yellow is quite important to me. I don't know why, but, well, I think I know why. I think it, I think it was prevalent in our house growing up and oh, just right. a few things just that that kind of uh somehow my mum had yellow curtains and um didn't it form a big landscape though that you had at the royal college of art a big paint well not college of art before that you showed a big painting that was your mum in the scarf and it was like a landscape and that was a big right. yellow ground that you had across the whole thing yeah that's right and it was kind of in fact it came about in a kind of most crazy way I just found a big tin of yellow paint and <laughs> and I only had tiny little colours for other paints so I thought this paint is going to be predominantly yellow, yellow. <laughs> 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 and you got a positive response to it though right that that, that made I you did, go yeah. oh wow and that, that then well encouraged you but also gave a confidence in you to keep going yeah that's right but yeah I think colour it, it has uh, really it can be a trigger for so many feelings and, and ideas, really, in, in itself, in a way. I mean, I think I've struggled sometimes. It's like I have to experience the colour in some way, you know, the, 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 which I, I find puzzling, but it, it's a thing you touched on before about giving yourself permission. And, and sometimes there's, uh, you don't want to be a tourist with colour, that you know it's somehow got to be from a lived experience uh, if that makes sense um i love that you don't want to be a tourist with color that's great but but, but you actually use specific materials as well which which sort of make the color feel different like way more Mm -hmm. atmospheric like in terms of distemper and like i have a house in Margate and I painted it with lime paint. So I'm very familiar with this kind of idea of lime and 
the way it's much more natural and also the chalk cliffs around here in chalk. And I know that there's loads of cave paintings and all these kind of things um, locally here in Kent. And it got me thinking a lot about your surface and the way that the colour is almost like a memory or something because of the distemper. And I'd never really thought much about distemper because I'd never made art, but I, I've been looking into it a lot and it's a really interesting material to, to have mm. chosen. How did that come about? And what is distemper for people who don't know? The, oh, I think this is the definition of it. I mean, I think it's it's really just a pigment and a binder. Now, the binder often I've used and other people have used is uh, rabbit skin glue, which is just a kind of animal glue that you warm up and then mix the pigment into it. And, but you can get artificial um, binders as well which sort of, you know, make it easier. I kind of had a desire to change my work. You know, I had was making very small paintings and, and big paintings, nothing in between. And that's, that's generally still the case. They're either very large or, or, or not very large, but large or very small. And I kind of felt the bigger paintings weren't quite as... Um, unique or something as the small paintings or surprising or somehow and they were done with oil paint um, I have them all still um, it was a period where nobody really kind of wanted to buy anything so but I wanted to change the bigger paintings and I reminded of a Clement Greenberg uh, mantra he's a critic he said, wasn't he he was an art critic yeah he said, if you want to change your work, change your method. Okay. So I kind of, and I, you know, I thought, I was thinking of other ways of making bigger paintings. And I was hankering after a kind of lightness, really, rather than a sort of big, heavy oil paintings. I wanted to explore big paintings that maybe were like watercolours sort of thing. You know, like they had the... They had the the lightness of a watercolour, but they might be seven, eight feet tall. And Tal R had done a show at Victoria Miro using distemper. And uh, and uh, Peter Doig was using it as well. And of course I'd seen the Vuillard paintings where Sometimes that was his medium, which was distemper. And, and, you know, I just thought I'll give it a try. So I started kind of using it really. And um, it instantly just, I don't know, made, made me make paintings in a different way. I started to kind of much more consciously use negative space and areas between things more um, I was more aware of that and you could see how Vuillard actually I think arrived at the way he worked because the tendency with that kind of painting you know with oil painting you might have you might have 30 colours all laid out and you might be dipping into them all the time. Mm. 
you can't really do that so much with working in distemper. You tend to mix up a colour. And it invites you to use a lot of that colour and then maybe mix another colour and use that colour. So you kind of, in a way, you're sort of uh, making areas of the paint in certain colours. So it kind of leads to a kind of blocking in that happens where where you're you're blocking in bits of the paint and much much more often and there's a kind of flatness happens so it it did kind of it did do what I was hoping it to do it did it did lead me to almost a change in the work but there's also a direct like literal link to to like theatrical scenery from history because I think yeah. in the Egyptian times it was used A, within homes which obviously a lot of your work depict these domestic spaces and I know you even think the medium of a painting is an inter- you know offers that kind of interior space like paintings can be a room but like I found that really fascinating like whether that was a deliberate decision or just a coincidental thing Yeah, no, t- totally I mean, one of a big kind of influence on me was visiting Italy when I was maybe just early 20s and seeing lots of frescoes mm. and the, the 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 quality of the fresco, the wall, and even the kind of decay of them or the, you know, the deterioration of them seemed really exciting. And as a surface, this, you meant chalky kind of dryness, uh, you know, so yeah, absolutely. That 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 kind of idea of the painting as a kind of wall really is quite exciting. It's weird as well because in the seventies, apparently councils used to like paint council houses or council flats with with that type of paint as well. I think because it was possibly more affordable or something. Yeah. But it's really interesting because I was wondering whether that, as an aesthetic, also you know, in your childhood, whether it also somehow echoes like a subconscious memory, like a suppressed. I don't know, because for me, having lived now, like like in, in this kind of house with lime paint around me and stuff, because I think it's also called cement paint, like it's got all these words that are very like specific and it's such a quality of a atmosphere that I'm not, I mean, I have seen it in Doig's work, you're right, and Vuillard and other people, but it's not that regular. You don't, you don't see it all the time. Do you know what no. I mean in, in contemporary art? No, it's, it's, it's not an easy way to paint either. It's, you know, like... I wouldn't really recommend it to anybody. I mean, it's <laughs> oil paints. Pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why it kind of came about and uh, it stuck, you know. As, uh, I mean, it's interesting. That you do feel a bit connected to something really ancient, I think. Yes. Thinking it. You know, that like in its basic sort of the pigment is rock, you know, just quarried rock and then you're mixing it with this glue that you know might be an animal glue it's like from uh, I think it's from the beef industry rather than it's called rabbit skin glue but I don't think it has anything to do with rabbits now you know so it, it you know and you could imagine that you know thousands of years ago really uh, being the way that people were painting so it's a kind of curious thing about, um, you know, trying to make contemporary painting, you know, in this, in this very ancient way. 
Yeah. There were also loads of connections to um, nature back then, apparently. So like, I think like here locally in Margate, a lot of the houses were painted a kind of rich green, which was to do with the sea moss, like, or, or the moss that grows on the chalk cliffs. And they would actually almost like go and sample somehow or like bring the moss to the house and they'd mix the paints to like match to the moss color, which I just find wow. fascinating. So there's this real like direct connection to totally choices of color. through of nature as well, isn't it? Through yeah. nature. I know, but I yeah, loved that. Great. And apparently the house I'm living in now breathes better because it's lime paint. So if it rains on the wall and then you get a damp patch, it will just dry out because it's all breathable. But I'm really into this idea of like the natural and, mm. and the kind of connection to nature. I mean, I, there was a, I remember I went on a boat trip in uh, Bruges. And I, I, I don't know if this is true, but the, the guy that was doing the guided tour, he pointed out this building and it was a kind of brown building. And he said it was painted with ox blood. Oh, right. Um, it's kind of like you know, it was a very old building. This is how it had been painted. Oxblood. I don't know if he was having a song. No, but you know what? I think Oxblood was a thing. There's an artist called Edith de Kint who's from Belgium and she makes work with Oxblood and or, or like blood from animals and stuff. A bit like the guy we interviewed last week, actually, but his is um other kinds of blood, but or it is animal blood too. But yeah, um it's definitely a thing historically. And within Europe as well, within Belgium. I like the idea of like it, but I, I, I wouldn't want to live in a house that's painted with oxbloods, to be honest with you. Um, you, you <laughs> yeah, any blood. I don't want anything painted in blood, thank you. But um, you <laughs> mentioned earlier on that there was a period in time in your career where nobody wanted to buy your work, and that is certainly not the case now. You are internationally collected. You are in uh, incredible institutional exhibition uh, uh, collections. You are currently at the Hepworth. This is your first solo uh, UK institutional show you're a big success, Andrew. What does that feel like? And is that sort of thing that um, you bring into the studio with you or do you have to forget it? What does success feel like for Andrew Cranston? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think in a kind of way, this sounds good. I mean, I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, of course, needless to say, you're much more defined by all the time before um, when when it was kind of uh, lonely or, or it was kind, you know, it, it, there wasn't that interest, you know. So I don't think it changes, it sort of changes everything and nothing somehow. Obviously it makes lots of material things easier, you know, that you don't really have to think about um, which you might have had to do before. But, you know, it doesn't, I don't know if it helps you make a better painting or kind of more interesting painting. You, you, you sort of, you're back to the, you're back somehow facing those big questions still. So it, is a curious one. I mean, it's sometimes curious we think, and you know, well, it's not like you could just do anything that would sell, but you know, it is, it can be confusing, you know, where you think, well, you know, when the work wasn't really selling so much, you know, 
I, I was really, I couldn't force, I couldn't be affected by that because you could have exhibitions and nothing would sell. And you had to feel strong enough that, well, the work's still good. Yeah. What kept you going then during that? How, how did you maintain well, you that? Know, use some kind of, yeah, some kind of blind faith or stubbornness or, or maybe just uh, uh, chime in with yourself that you think, well, this is the work I wanted to make. This is it, you know, like, and I can't be affected by that. And so, well, for a long time, most of the people that bought any work were were other artists, oh, other painters, really. Interesting. And just really for a few hundred pounds. So is is there a local is a local art scene something that has been very important to you because I was about to say that like even if it didn't sell you might have had really nice comments from people who saw a show or a local gallery took you on or you know what I mean like things like that cuz I know you've worked with numerous galleries No I mean it's interesting with Glasgow I have a kind of I think maybe a complex relationship with the art world there uh, not through any big choice but uh, Glasgow's got a great art scene, you know, in many ways. It's it's kind of thought of as maybe the city outside of London that is, you know, where art is a very important thing. I haven't really sort of benefited much from the, the art scene that's been here and... I've shown a few times in uh, places and I was very much kind of in the artist run scene for a long time where you, you found a space and, and you put your work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no question of money at all. And that can be really useful to actually sort of take any kind of financial imperative out the, out of it entirely so you're making the work for some kind of more pure um freedom you know like of expression you know uh, to try and sort of maybe say something in that field that you're working in or and you know just and as yeah get kind of some current is it the currency of feedback if you like you know, People. So there was always, yeah, there was always people. But I think um, any kind of more official uh, sort of channels, the, I was not on the radar at all. I feel um, like critique's been you know, most really important to you. Good critique, obviously, encourages anyone to move forward creatively. But, you know, you critique, you were saying, with your partner now, because you, your studio's next to each other, you have this Greek chorus of art people that are critiquing <laughs> you in your mind's eye. You know, your critical reviews you had at college that made you feel like you were an artist you could do. Th- these things have been uh, fundamental to your practice. And I guess for many artists, they may not realise the positives of critique whether they are good or bad is that something that you would celebrate and and encourage people to look for yeah i mean it's it can be hard you know because you it's hard to divorce yourself from the work always so that any kind of criticism you know you have to almost separate that the criticism 
might be of the work and not of you. You know, mm. it, it, that's a skill in itself, isn't it? To mm. kind of not take things too kind of personally and and think to yourself, well, what could make the work better in a way or or change it in some way or or you know amplify some aspect of it uh, you know I mean it was, in, it was interesting teaching you know and obviously I got a lot out of that experience where I think at its best you were just having conversations with uh, artists or art students mm. and it wasn't teaching in that kind of sort of didactic sense it was kind of more more trying to sort of um, talk around the work or, or, you know, deconstruct it maybe, but also um, think of it much more rhetorically. So, you know, you could kind of um, ask a question and answer it as well. And But you're not, yeah, I think that's, um, it is useful, but I think... Uh, it's I've not worked necessarily in a kind of community of that in Glasgow. It's it's been just odd individuals kind of thing. Right, really. Right. Well before uh, we get on to our final questions, could you describe the feeling of knowing when a painting is finished? No. <laughs> um, How do you know then? <laughs> I ideally it has sat around for a while. <laughs> and you're bored of and, it. It's like, fuck off, yeah. <laughs> it, it can't, I just can't, there's nothing else to add to it. It's, it's has a completeness that is tested through seeing it repeatedly and kind of constantly. And it's kind of, it, it settles into itself as a finished thing, you know. What's uh, the longest of paintings sat around in view? Um, I mean, pr probably, yeah, maybe 10 years, <gasps> something like that. That, you, well, that you've been looking at for 10 years, it's been there peripherally or in vision? No, maybe that's maybe not quite like that. But there's things on the go for a long time wow. that I've kind of sort of just never got round to sort of finishing. And it can happen a lot where I make something, and as you say, the studio is quite messy. And actually, the small paintings, especially, they disappear a bit. I actually physically lose sight of them under various accretions of things and then they surface again at some point and they often seem finished in a way that it didn't at all seem finished when I, when I when I made it it's like you know it's like I've caught up with something I've caught up with the painting itself and uh, it's, it seems you know it seems complete. But that's also the benefit of having so many things going on at once because also you then don't ruin something or destroy it 
yeah, like overpainting it, yeah, it or yeah. doing because I've seen friends who do that who just like paint over the stuff too much and then they're like fuck why did I do it like I've ruined the painting you have to start again <laughs> I mean that's it it's nice to have lots of things to to work on and I mean it can be a problem where you know somebody's got maybe two or three big canvases and you know it's their big canvas and it's like they almost want value out of it to be able to work on it you know, it's like I remember when I first saw Sophie von Hellman's work for the first yeah. time, and it seemed so fresh. And it really, some of that freshness was just clearly through the immediacy of how it was made. You know, that it was it, it looked like it was made in a kind of one go, and um, it's quite hard to. Yeah, you allow yourself that. And sometimes it doesn't happen because you think, well, this canvas has cost me like, you know, £150 to make. Yeah. Something, you know, kind of thing. I'm not, I need some more, I need my money's worth. And that's no reason really to to be keeping working on something. Uh, so it's, it's sometimes best to work on almost things that are kind of, not loaded with value at the beginning and you're kind of trying to make them valuable you know so it's like you know it could be the back of a cornflakes packet or something but is that why you paint on book covers then it, well it came about in an accidental way but there is something there that it's easy to find lots of books so yeah, they're they're kind of um, bountiful, really. I'm not thinking too much about the value before I start. Yeah, yeah l- less precious. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote here before we get into cool. fine questions where you say, "Don't be too respectful of the painting. It's got to be almost in the bin all the time." Yeah, and I love that. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> Talking about not being precious yeah. with it. It's got to be like any minute now, you're like, you're going to chuck that. It's, it's just in like always <laughs> teetering on the edge. Them, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of them do. Um, so, our final question is this has been amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, the no, stories of, of all, all your coloured mud. Uh, I love that phrase. Um, Joseph Boyce, apparently. That's what Joseph Boyce's description of painting was uh, is coloured mud on fabric I mean it is a put down of, of painting you know in some ways it's like I don't know that's quite yeah I like that I've written <laughs> that down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. coloured mud on fabric so the questions we ask every guest that comes on the first one is if you could do an art heist you could have any artwork in the world for yourself what would it be and why uh, this is like desert island discs or something it's, absolutely it is it's um it's the art desert island discs. I mean, I was talking about Matisse before. It might be the Red Studio, actually. Uh, yeah, amazing. I'd, I'd, a monk is very important to me as well. Uh, one of the ones, the kind of rooms where there are people dying around them and they're kind of deathbed scenes. Yeah, I think I'll go for that. I think I'll go for a monk. I think Munch has been a uh, centre of a heist before, hasn't he? 
Oh, the scream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Many yeah, yeah. times. Yeah. One of the screams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a few times. I thought you were going to say um, Van Gogh's sunflowers because I think it's one of the first prints you saw, but for many years you thought it was a dog's head. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's one of the few things in our house. Yeah, Van Gogh. It's great. But, but you thought the sunflowers was a dog's head from what? Like, I don't know. Till what age did you realise it? it really? I'm going to have to have a look at it now. Oh my god! It's like one of those those images that you look at and then it reveals an image. Maybe well, that's like the a looking and the seeing, in isn't it? That is. I think as well. You probably read things at a certain age, and because you only have a certain reference field of reference for what it could be. I, I probably had never seen a sunflower, but I'd seen right. lots of dogs. Right, right. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. The, the thing only matched my, my, with the experience. But your, your, your work often includes animals. And I heard you saying that um, you don't actually have that, pet, you don't have pets or some sort of massive passion for animals in, in, a, in a kind of a romantic way or something. But it's more like that they're in the work for a specific reason. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, the animals do turn up a lot. I mean, I like them as, well, they're almost figurative elements, you know, in the sense that there's a sort of presence in a painting or it's 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 got a, an essence or a, a kind of, you know, it's alive in the painting. So it, they, they kind of maybe do something like a figure in a kind of way. And then there's what people bring to animals in a, in a way, a kind of empathy I mean, it's interesting, you know, like even we see on Instagram, the amount of people that, you know, their pets and cat, cats and dogs and, and everything. That's me and Rob, that, yeah. So <laughs> that's us, Andrew, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. You know, it's a great level yeah. you know, like, I mean, do you know Matthew Higgs? Yeah, of course. You know, yes. You know, his dog's got its own page. Beryl, isn't it? Is it Beryl? Uh, yeah. Olive. Olive, that's Olive. it. Sorry, yes. My cat's Olive. window and doorway have their own page. So it's like it, it cuts across everything, you it know, does. in a kind of way, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of, it's often a private side of people as well that you know their relationship to to that that's that's kind of uncurated in a kind of way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I finally have been uh, always returning to. Do you know the book? Um, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? No. The Philip K. Dick book, who which Blade Runner is based on. Oh, right. Science fiction novel. Oh. Um, the novel's quite different from the film, um, and animals feature quite a lot in the in the book. Um, it's essentially a kind of post-nuclear world where animals have died off pretty much and people have well genetic or electronic animals and stuff like this and there's a few real animals and it's really it becomes the way in which people's empathy is tested and therefore whether they are human or an android is is kind of how they relate to animals and uh, so I, I think so. I think there's a kind of ecological reason in there as well. So almost guilt that you know 
the natural world is is being so put under pressure, really. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're great to draw as well. Right, <laughs> they're great to catch dogs <laughs> and kind of you know great shapes. So I think the the, the impulse is an abstract abstract one as well as as what they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get enjoyment in the process. Um, the other question we ask is, what is your favourite colour? Yellow. I think I'm going to go yellow. I don't know if it's my favourite, but it is the one that intrigues me the most. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't quite get to the bottom of it in a way. Um, it's maybe associated with illness and jaundice and sunshine, you know, Van Gogh kind of mm. madness. Van Gogh, yes. Van Gogh kind of owns yellow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when 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 I was I couldn't travel very far when I was a child. Literally car sick after ten miles, and uh, the thing that almost always made me sick. But my parents had this yellow. What's what you call it? I can't. I can't potty. Do you know what I mean? It was like a a, a vessel plastic vessel with handles don't know if it had and it was a pale yellow it was like um, oil paint would be like a, a nickel yellow very kind of lemon yellowy colour as soon as I saw that yellow violently sick so oh wow it's a complex but, but you like it. You like, that's the colour you. Yeah, that's your favourite colour, even though you were violently sick. Great. Well, he likes to be challenged. That's I like that this. As well. It's funny they sent me a que- they sent me a question, which I th- thought you were going to ask, and it was like, "What is the best piece of advice you've had?" Oh yeah, we're going to ask that now. What is the best piece yes. of advice you've ever received? Well, <laughs> in Manchester, nineteen eighty nine. Moved from Hoyk to Manchester to do a foundation course. And I had uh, hardly even been to a city, never mind lived in a city. So I moved to Manchester in 1989, which was, it was having, you know, this big cultural moment with the music and stuff. I was um, so naive, but the course was terrific. And um, there was a few painters there that uh, took many of us kind of under their wing. And this guy, good Dave Pearson, he's, he would kind of talk in riddles a little bit. Um, but he said this thing to me that he said, get into the habit of wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're in a nightclub or you're in a mountainside or you're lying in your bed ill or in any situation, ask yourself, is there a painting in this? And I think I have done that. I think I have always thought, what thought of any situation I'm in and almost been looking at it as potential subject 
And it means you're never stuck because your ideas just follow the course of your life. And, uh, you know, they come to you in a way. The ideas are just always coming to you. That's beautiful. I um I also really loved it when you described uh, your practice as, or, or sorry, your process as haphazard and somewhat shambolic. I thought that was such a kind of release mm. for people listening to know that that can the kind of like the non order. You know what I mean? Can can be you find chaos stimulating <laughs> as well. I think I've heard you say. Yeah, but it's just liberating yeah. that as an idea, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of. Um... And, you know, it's interesting, like Francis Bacon, how mm. how actually quite slick his images are sometimes. You know, the background's very flat and they, they don't look like they've come out of a kind of mess, actually. They look, they look quite clinical in a, in, a, in a kind of way. So I think there's a kind of... Uh, there's an interesting relationship between something about mess and the anarchy of just you know things and 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 trying to make something trying to get some order really from that amazing well i just want to finish on a quote that uh, we when we were talking about dogs i was trying to find this quote in my phone that uh, ellen jones who's a mutual friend of mine and rob's she said was from her favorite radio show called cabin pressure from years ago and she said that dogs are a secret loophole that allow the british to talk to strangers and i that that stayed with me because i thought that was amazing and uh yeah. i think that your work allows us to talk to strangers because your work is connecting with so many and uh it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you now i think we've been talking about an hour and a half nearly andrew and this is right, just this okay. is just this is just zipped along it's, it's been, been amazing brilliant. loved so it all thank you so much the exhibition at the hepworth wakefield which is rob saying is on till the middle of next year what made you stop here uh, which we didn't go into, but that's uh, about, I think that's based on your parents saying, are you stopping tonight when they're, when you're going to stay at someone's right. house? I love that phrase. I know, like sleeping, sleeping over or staying over. over yeah. It is that. It was also the, 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 the meaning of when do you stop painting? You know, ah. in a way, your question of when is it finished? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think. So I, I kind of thought I'd cover it. It was kind of two meanings in a kind of way. Yeah. Amazing. So the show runs until the 2nd of June, 2024, but you must get there now because I reckon you're going to want to see it more than once. And if you would like to learn a bit more, there's an amazing film that the Hepworth Wakefield's made, a small, a small kind of documentary about Andrew. It's really beautiful. Really worth, uh, really worth watching. Um, Andrew, are you on social media? Uh, yeah. What's your Instagram? <laughs> is it just Andrew Cranston? Yeah, it is. I think cool. it's got a dot after Andrew. Andrew okay, Andrew Doc Cranston. So we will connect to you on our Instagram at Talker and we'll be back very soon. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Andrew, for your generosity. You're amazing. We love Thanks. you. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Talker with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talker, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talker at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com